Welcome back, brothers and sisters. This is Seed Wars number 33. And I think that 33 is a very appropriate number for this video because this video is going to really try and um, articulate all of the different points that we've been making for the last quite a few lectures regarding Freemasonry and the Babylonian mystery religions that go back even before the flood and reemerge after the flood. I don't think it's a coincidence that this just happens to be the 33rd video because this video is going to really um, bring together all of the different points that I've been trying to make for a long time. And this video is going to be looking at the film Conan the Barbarian, made in 1982 by Oliver Stone. Now, one of the listeners uh, informed me that Oliver Stone is a 32. 33rd degree Freemason. So that doesn't surprise me because the film is just chock full of all kinds of uh, deep occult um, information and symbolism that we're going to go through. But before we do, I just want to try and set the stage. It really revolves around Genesis 6 and what happened with the hybridization program before the flood and then the, the revival or the reemergence of that same ideology after the flood through the person of King Nimrod and the Tower of Babel. And so that's what Conan the Barbarian is, is basically about. And there's a lot of really interesting um, truths embedded within the film that we're going to take a look at. But I think that um, one of the most important take-home points is is that the Genesis 6 conditions where the fallen angels mated with the daughters of men, particularly the daughters of Cain, and they created the hybrids, the Nephilim, that is still one of the greatest secrets on the planet. I mean, we, we have about 7.5 billion people walking the earth right now. The vast majority of them are not Christian. And so for all of the non-Christians, which makes up probably you know 80%, they don't have any knowledge of this at all. Then that leaves the, the other you know, 10 or 20%, which are Christians. And interestingly enough, probably 90% of them don't know about it either because it's not taught in churches. It's just something that you don't hear much about. So really, there's a small minority of people on the planet who understand what transpired before the flood. The pre-flood world was a very unique and interesting time, and understanding it is going to help really um, paint a picture for what's coming in the last days. And for those of you who are new to the channel, you know, the Days of Noah series and the Seed War series, it's, it's about spending a lot of time looking at the Bible through both a genetic lens, but also through the lens of the book of Enoch and Genesis 6, which basically says that the fallen angels came down from the heavens and they made it with the women. They took the women, as it says, and they created the offspring, the, the Nephilim, who were the men of renown or the men of myth. Now, these are the men that legends were made of. The, this, these are the Hercules and the Conan the Barbarians of the past they are let they have a legendary status that has existed on the planet 
going back thousands of years and still exist today. Now, these angels didn't just corrupt mankind genetically, but they also revealed the eternal secrets of heaven, which are referred to as the sacred sciences. These are things like alchemy and some of the um, skills that were used in Freemasonry to, to, you know, to build the architecture, all of the geometry and many of the other things that were used to build all of the ancient megalithic structures came from the fallen angels, as well as the concept of cutting roots and herbs to make potions and drugs for sorcery and learning how to master all of the metallurgy for you know casting weapons and forging weapons for warfare and currency and and idols and things like that they also taught mankind about the winter and summer solstice the rotation of the planets the earth the moon the zodiac astrology and so on and so forth most people think that mankind just sort of stumbled into all of these technologies along the way they they evolved into learning these things but the reality of it is is that mankind lived a, a fairly simple lifestyle until the fallen angels revealed all of the eternal secrets of heaven and then things changed very quickly now i can assure you that the fallen angels didn't reveal this knowledge for altruistic purposes they definitely wanted to contaminate the planet both genetically and morally in order to leave people away from the most high god and that's exactly what happened now eventually god decided to level the playing field because just prior to the flood pretty much all of humanity had been contaminated genetically including the animals we have many texts that reveal that they were also mixing the dna of one species with another with another and breaking the genetic barriers and limitations that god had prescribed back in the original creation account so essentially the whole planet was genetically contaminated and you know this this left god with really no choice but to hit the reset button and so he flooded the earth and he destroyed and, and washed away that old world and he spared just a few including noah who was pretty much the last pure adamite on the planet he could be traced back to the original adamic race made in the image of adam who of course was made in the image of god but what's fascinating is even though noah and his immediate kin were spared we see an immediate revival of the pre-flood conditions come about right away through the person of nimrod and it becomes clear that when you study it closely there's little doubt that nimrod was also a mighty one a gibberim he was a nephilim who i believe was a direct ancestor and had the same genetic lineage as the seed of the serpent predecessors before the flood and as the scripture reveals nimrod uh, decided to try and create a one world system based on 
tyranny and dictatorship. And this is where we see the building of the um, Tower of Babel, which has a lot of uh, symbolism regarding the one world system and the beast system in the last days. And Nimrod himself is a shadow of the Antichrist to come. And so the reason that I've chosen Conan the Barbarian is because this film really encapsulates everything to do with the pre and post flood world. In fact, I'll go out on go out on a limb by saying that I can't think of any movie that I've ever seen that really encapsulates all of the different concepts regarding the Genesis 6 conspiracy in the immediate post flood world through the person of Nimrod. This movie has everything in it from um, genetic modification, uh, reptilian, shape-shifting entities, witchcraft, sorcery, giants, demigods. Uh, it really, truly uh, encapsulates everything that we've been looking at over many of the previous lectures. And so, you know, along the way, I'm going to try and point out the symbols that I see. Obviously, I don't know everything. There are many layers to these uh, topics that we're discussing. And, you know, I, I, I like to remind the listeners that I don't I don't know it all. And, and I'm very well aware of that. And many people have reminded me of that. Um, and in fact, the more that I learn, the more I realize I don't know that that the ancient world is still a giant mystery. Um, we're beginning to get a feel for what was transpiring. There's a lot of questions that I and many others have, and hopefully as time goes on, the Holy Spirit will continue to reveal knowledge and truth. But moving forward, I think that we're going to see that there's a lot of deep occult symbolism in this film, and I'm going to point out as much symbolism uh, as, as I can see, and I'm sure many of you will be able to identify other things as well. There's probably many layers of symbolism embedded within the film itself. So on that note, we will begin with the movie Conan the Barbarian. So at the very beginning of the film, the first thing that we see is a famous quote by Friedrich Nietzsche. That which does not kill us makes us stronger. And many of us have heard this expression before and it's an expression that I've always admired. Of course, I never really understood exactly what it meant. But when you begin to study Nietzsche, you can start to understand it better. He was a, a German philosopher and a nihilist. Now, nihilism is a, a system where they believe that human values are, are basically baseless, that life is essentially meaningless. Um, there is no God, there is no afterlife, there is no spiritual realm. And so they have a very skeptical and, and pessimistic view of the world. And Nietzsche's philosophies were, were really born out of Christianity in a sense, because he, he really abhorred Christianity, especially the Roman Catholic Church and and 
and the system that it had implemented for the last couple of thousand years. And on some level, I can respect that because many of us have, in pursuing different faiths, have experienced religious systems that, you know, seem to be more about control and money than it was about faith and, and spirituality. But nonetheless, similar to Aleister Crowley, Nietzsche adopted the concept of not only did he not believe in God, but he wanted to express the idea of the death of God, as well as the morality of Christianity. And so in Nietzsche's world, there really is no right or wrong. Um, you know, life's choices are just what you do with them. And you don't have to be concerned about right or wrong or morality, but rather you just do what serves you best. And in essence, that's kind of what we'll see throughout the movie of Conan. Um, the reason that the, the writers of the film have included one of Nietzsche's quotes at the beginning is because they're, in a subliminal way, they're trying to display a nihilistic viewpoint throughout the film. And a lot of it has to do with this idea that Nietzsche coined, which is the expression, the Ubermensch, which is a German word that can be translated as the Superman or the Uberman, this superhuman um, evolution of mankind. And this is a concept that goes back very, very far actually to the pre-flood world. And we're going to look at that more closely, but you know, Nietzsche also believed in the eugenics program, which is essentially this concept of creating a better genetic stock and more superior humans, such as the Aryan or Germanic master race. Now, this has obviously a lot to do with Adolf Hitler. In fact, Hitler often referred to Nietzsche's concept as the Ubermensch. And we know that Hitler was obsessed with trying to create the perfect Aryan man. And that's not an idea that he came up with, but rather it's an old idea that actually goes back to the pre-flood world uh, of the days of Atlantis, according to the New Age and the occultists. And so Hitler was obsessed with trying to create a new age of Atlantis. And we'll see a lot of those themes play out throughout the film of Conan itself. And going forward, just know that when I mention the age of Atlantis, I'm really referring to the pre-flood era leading up to Noah's flood. You know, biblically, we know that Noah's flood came. Those who subscribe to other philosophies, those who are in the occult and the new age, they'll talk about the age of Atlantis and that's the pre-flood conditions. So when I'm speaking of the age of Atlantis, the listeners can know that I'm referring to the pre-flood era before Noah's flood. So the first scene that we see in the film is an image of 
Conan when he's a young boy and his father is having a very deep philosophical conversation with Conan regarding the sword that he's holding. And there's a narrator in the film who says the following. Between the time when the oceans drink Atlantis and the rise of the sons of Arius, there was an age undreamed of. And unto this, Conan, destined to bear the jeweled crown of Aquilonia upon a troubled brow. It is I, his chronicler, who alone can tell thee of this saga. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure, when fire and wind come from the sky, from the gods of the sky. But Krom is your god. Krom lives in the earth. Once, giants lived in the earth, Conan. Now that's an important point that I want to elaborate on. Notice that he says that giants lived in the earth. He doesn't say that giants lived on the earth or upon the earth, but rather that giants lived in the earth. And this has a lot to do with the hollow earth theory, which was a very uh, strong theory that the Nazis adopted. And believe it or not, there's actually quite a bit of mythology and, and legend about it, as well as some biblical ideas that support this concept. In fact, if you go back to after World War II in the 1940s, we have uh, Operation High Jump, which is where Admiral Byrd was commissioned to take a fleet of ships down to Antarctica to search for the Third Reich and some of the U-boats that had disappeared. And according to Admiral Byrd's testimony, when he entered into Antarctica, he discovered a subterranean um, city underneath the ice. And it was there that these Nazi UFOs were traveling in and out of the water at several thousand nautical miles. And they pretty much sank all of Byrd's armada except for the ship that he was on. And he was able to limp back to North America where he disclosed what he had witnessed. And this has to do with the hollow earth theory that, that there is a uh, area both in the North and South Pole where there are people and entities living within that are helping control the destiny of the world. And we'll explore that more in the movie uh, as it progresses. Continuing on, the narrator says, And in the darkness of chaos, they fooled Krom, and they took from him the enigma of steel. And Krom was angered, and the earth shook, and fire and wind struck down the giants and threw their bodies into the water. This is obviously speaking about the age of Atlantis, which I believe is what the Bible is referring to during Noah's flood. He goes on to say, but in their rage, the gods forgot the secret of steel and they left it on the battlefield. And so what's being inferred here is that this god Krum, who you could think of as the fallen angels, he's the one who revealed to mankind before the flood the enigma of steel. See, according to this, 
The Enigma of Steel was a secret. It was a secret that was revealed to mankind. And it's very consistent with what the Book of Enoch says regarding the fallen angels who revealed these secrets to mankind. Notice that it says that Conan was destined to bear the jeweled crown of Aquilonia. The concept of destiny or fate suggests prophecy. And we're going to see that there are prophecies within the script within this movie that line up very much with the Proto-Evangelium. We'll find that Conan is the one who's prophesied to crush the serpent's head. And that lines up very much so with the Proto-Evangelium in Genesis 3.15. So we're talking about the age of Atlantis. In fact, the expression that, the, that he says is that the time when the oceans drank Atlantis. In other words, the oceans swallowed Atlantis. This is when the, the seas destroyed that ancient land. Now, there's a lot of mythology about Atlantis. Plato and many others describe the pre-flood world of Atlantis. And it was said to be this utopian society that was governed by the demigods. Now, the word demigods, according to Greek mythology, is half human, half gods. In my opinion, that's just a retelling or another rendition of what the Bible says regarding the Nephilim, the fallen angels mixed with the humans. And he mentions the rise of the sons of Arios. Now, Arios is the progenitor of the Aryan race. And as we'll see in a moment, the Aryan race are said to have come from the land or the time of Atlantis. And so this idea of Hitler's to create this uh, Aryan master race is really an old idea that dates back before the flood. And any time that you look at modern day renditions of Atlantis, you'll always see these large megalithic structures under the water, pyramids, pillars, and royal arches with all of the different iconography that we typically attribute to Greece and Rome. But in reality, as I've displayed in some previous lectures, the Romans and the Greeks and the other cultures, they really were just copying what their predecessors had done before them. And that copy goes all the way back to the pre-flood conditions. So let's quickly compare the opening statements in the film with the Bible. We're talking about the days of Atlantis, that's the pre-flood conditions that led up to Noah's flood. We're dealing with the rise of the sons of Arios. And notice that immediately what we see is that giants lived in the earth. The sons of Arios are in reference to this Aryan race of demigods that lived on the earth, and they were giant men. And it was during this era that the enigma of steel, or the secret of steel, was revealed to mankind. And then the gods struck them down and threw these giants in the water when the great flood came to destroy Atlantis. 
Now, in my opinion, that's extremely close with the scriptures. This is just a different rendition, sort of a new age occult rendition of what the Holy Scripture says. In Genesis 6, we're also told that there were giants on the earth in those days. And we're told that the sons of God came into the daughters of men and bore these children, whom we know to be Nephilim, but Greek mythology refers to as demigods. These were the mighty men of old, the men of renown. To have a renowned name means to be famous, to be legendary. If you lived on the planet 4,000 years ago, the name of Hercules was a legendary name then, and even today within movies and Hollywood, we still know of the name of Hercules. These are the mythological pre-flood demigod giants that existed back then. So it becomes very clear in my mind that we're seeing biblical concepts being embedded within this film, Conan the Barbarian, and there are going to be a lot of biblical truths throughout the film. However, we also have to understand that there's a lot of sort of counterfeit and occult teachings as well, and we'll try to dissect through those as we proceed forward. Now, before we delve any further into the film, I think we just need to take a moment and, and look at some historical people that were very prominent, very influential in pushing some of these New Age doctrines. One of the most famous would be that of Madame Blavatsky, who is a Russian mystic that lived in the 1800s. She is the one who wrote the famous book called The Secret Doctrine. And it talks about the original six root races that have existed for billions and millions of years, and that each of these races would eventually come to a place of extinction. And it would be at that time that their spirits would incarnate into a future race. So for example, if you go back far enough, according to her writings, we had the Hyperborean race. And eventually the Hyperborean race would evolve into the Lemurian race and so on and so forth until we get down to the pre-flood world, which is the Atlantean race. Now, according to Blavatsky, the flood destroyed the Atlantean race, but they were able to spiritually incarnate into a further race known as the Aryan race, which is the tall, muscular, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, Germanic-appearing master race. And that's who she believes are currently occupying the planet today. And of course, through her ideology, it continues to go forward that, that eventually there's going to be cataclysmic conditions on planet Earth that are going to usher Earth into the next golden age where man will once again transcend to a higher level. He'll transcend to the fifth dimension and become more etheric in nature. And this also ties into some of the transhumanism that we're seeing propagated about this idea that it's time for mankind to evolve where he's merged together with machine, artificial intelligence, robotics, nanotechnology to become transhuman or posthuman and create this future race. Now you may ask, well, where on earth did Madame Blavatsky gain all of this knowledge about these six root races? And the answer is, is that 
She was deeply steeped in the occult, and she was deeply steeped into Eastern mysticism. She traveled to places like Tibet. She spent a lot of time under the tutelage of all of the gurus. She learned how to do all the transcendental meditation. She learned how to communicate with all of the spiritual entities. And she essentially channeled these different doctrines from demonic entities. And it's through these what she refers to as ascended masters, which are part of the great brotherhood of light. These ancient ascended masters who are these spiritual entities that she was able to commune through, commune with these ascended masters through seances and automatic writing and by being a spiritist and a medium that she was able to uh, learn and then write her books and communicate this knowledge to people today. Now, this became extremely famous. Lots of different people began to take on these ideas, including people like Adolf Hitler, who basically was a theosophist because it's part of the Nazi regime, which is why when you look at the symbol down here on the bottom right, you'll see the swastika. And we'll take a look at that in a moment. But the important thing to understand is that all of these doctrines that Blavatsky had subscribed to, they became very prominent and a lot of famous people began to adopt them. People like Oprah Winfrey, people who are in the New Age movement, people like Adolf Hitler, Aleister Crowley had some of these um, New Age ideas. Uh, Nicholas Rorick, who helped put the seal on the dollar bill and was the personal guru to the 33rd degree uh, president, the Freemason, um, FDR, who was uh, in charge of, of the design of the dollar bill. And so we'll see that she had a tremendous amount of influence um, in terms of the New Age. She's one of the mothers of the New Age movement. Make no mistake about that. And so she believes that the Atlantean race was this very sophisticated race of demigods. And they're the ones who built all of the ancient structures. They built Atlantis and they built the pyramids and they built all of the, you know, seven wonders of the world before the flood. And now they've reemerged after the flood into this Aryan race. And when you look at the symbols, they're very interesting. You know, we see all of the classic occult symbols sort of all smorgasbord into one. First, you have the six-pointed star inside of a circle. That's called a hexagram. That's how you put a spell or a hex on somebody. I've, I've discussed this many times in the past. It also represents the as above, so below um, philosophy of ancient Kabbalah, of Hermeticism, which is what all the secret societies are based on. Basically, all of the Babylonian mystery religions base, are based around this as above, so below principle. And it's interesting that some of the Masonic writings say that Hermes was just a different name for Tubalcain. And we know that Tubalcain was a master mason before the flood. He was the predecessor of Nimrod, who would become the master mason after the flood. And they all practiced all of this occult sorcery and witchcraft. We also notice that the triangle pointing up is a white triangle and the triangle pointing down is a black triangle. That's essentially... Um, duality, like the yin and the yang, opposites, and then 
Of course, in the middle, we see the Egyptian cross known as the Ankh. And we're going to get into that later because we're going to find that that symbol uh, is the symbol for the Egyptian god Set. And Set is going to be mentioned throughout the film. In Conan the Barbarian, the, the serpent seed within that movie worshiped the god Set. And interestingly enough, you'll see that he's a hybrid. He has a man's body with a falcon-shaped head. And so, obviously, this concept of hybridization of humans and animals is something that dates back before the flood. And we know that when you look at all of the Egyptian hieroglyphics, we see all kinds of different hybridization, including the huge sphinx, which sits outside of the, the Pyramid of Giza. It has the head of a pharaoh superimposed on a lion's body, and people talk about the riddle of the Sphinx for the last 4,000 years, and it's not a riddle anymore. It's all about the age of Atlantis or the pre-flood conditions where men were being breeded with animals to create hybrids. And the last thing I'll say about the symbol is we see the Ouroboros, which is the snake eating its tail. <clears throat> and there's some really deep occult symbolism tied in with that particular symbol, beyond the fact that it's obviously a serpent, and it does represent the serpent seed race that's described in the Bible. And most people, especially Hindus and Buddhists, they believe that the symbol has to do with reincarnation, and it technically does, but it's on a much deeper level than what we think of today as reincarnation. And we're going to look at that throughout the, the movie because we're going to see examples of the Ouroboros being played out in which these demigods are able to transfer their soul energy into other flesh bodies. They're able to do exactly what Madame Blavatsky talked about. She said that this each of these races, when, when the time would come to destroy each race, they would incarnate into a more evolved race. The Lemurians would become the Atlanteans. Eventually, the Atlanteans would become the Aryans. That's what the Ouroboros represents. That's the kind of reincarnation we're talking about. It's not just a spiritual reincarnation, but it's a physical reincarnation. And we'll look at that more as the film progresses. Now, I've said in the past that... <clears throat> There's a lot of connectivity between Eastern mysticism and some of the Eastern religions with the New Age movement, with Nazism, with theosophy, with the occult, with ufology. They're all different layers to the same onion. And in my personal opinion, and there are some of those of you who will disagree, but in my opinion, it's all wrapped up around the same occult spirit. And and that is that spirit of Antichrist that's working to drive people away from Christianity and the God of the Bible and Jesus Christ. So if you study ancient Buddhism and Hinduism, you'll see plenty of symbology revolving the swastika. And what the swastika really truly means at its core is it, it represents the the sons of Arios. It represents the Aryan demigods that existed before the flood. 
which in my opinion are the Nephilim. That's what the Aryan race is really about, is, is the Nephilim. And that's what Adolf Hitler was obsessed with trying to recreate. He wanted to genetically reverse engineer and backbreed the Nephilim by creating the Aryan master race. That's why the Nazis were obsessed with DNA. Joseph Mengele, who they called the angel of death, he used to sit outside the railroad tracks in Dachau and Auschwitz, waiting for the young twin boys and girls to come in off the trains. He would snatch them up and do all kinds of genetic testing on them because heterozygotic twins made the best DNA genetic testing specimens that there were. The Nazis are the ones who made the breakthroughs on genetics. Watson and Crick came out officially in 52 with the double strand, but it was off the backs of the Nazis. They were obsessed with genetics. That's why Adolf Hitler had archaeological digs all around the world looking for ancient relics and ancient giant bones because he knew if he could get a hold of that those specimens that they could reverse engineer and try to recreate that DNA. It was all about making the master Aryan race of the pre-flood era. And if a couple million people had to die in the process, big deal. Because when you come from this theosophical, new age, nihilistic approach like that of his predecessor, Nietzsche, human values are baseless. You know, there is no right or wrong. There is no morality. It's about the strong survive. That which doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And it's the survival of the fittest. And so he applied his, his will over humanity, and uh, he, he almost got it done. Now, Madame Blavatsky also reinterpreted the Bible. She claimed that Jesus Christ was not the Son of God who came and died for humanity's sins, but rather he was nothing more than one of the ascended masters, what she referred to as a master of the ancient wisdom. And she actually calls him Master Jesus. And she believes that Master Jesus is part of a larger group known as the Great White Brotherhood, and that there are many ascended masters on the same level as Jesus. For example, Buddha, Krishna, Confucius, uh, Muhammad, and many others. And so whenever you see renditions of the master Jesus. He'll always be sitting Indian style or in the Buddha position. Um, he usually has his third eye lit up and he is um, demonstrated in such a way that he's just a regular man who found out a way to tap into the Christ within. And this leads us down the pathway of the Christ consciousness, which is what the New Age movement, the Jesuit priesthood, and many other occult organizations are about. They deny the deity of Jesus Christ as the Son of God, but rather they claim that he was one of many Christs, and he was a person who was able to tap into his spiritual ancestors of the past, and then he was able to evolve and become enlightened through the Kundalini, 
so that he could become his own master, his own ascended master and his own Christ. Now, the reason I point this out is because, again, we're going to see some of these themes being played out in the movie. And when we point those things out, it's important that we have sort of a foundation to, to, to look at those things. And so I'm, I'm describing them now. But, you know, for those of you who've listened to me for a while, you know my perspective. Everybody's entitled to their own opinion. My opinion is I believe that the Bible is true. I believe that it's the word of God. I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. He was God in the flesh and that he died for humanity's sins. And one of the things that Jesus said himself in Matthew 24 is that there would come a time when many would come in his name saying that they are the Christ. And he, he declares in Matthew 24 that there'll be many false Christs and many false prophets who will arise and show great signs and wonders if possible to deceive even the very elect. And so I believe that that's what we're looking at with this rendition, that Madame Blavatsky's concept of the Ascended Masters and Master Jesus, which let me remind you, came from a demonically channeled uh, a doctrine that she received by communing with dead spirits, is definitely an example of one of these false Christs. So getting back to the movie, I want to focus on this concept of the secret of steel. See, Conan's father is having a very intimate moment with him, and he's passing down this very important knowledge as he holds the sword, because this is the immediate post-flood world. This would be comparable to the days of Nimrod, and this is the era of steel or what I refer to as the religion of steel. All of mankind at this point is going to begin pursuing the metals. And that's very similar to what we see in the scripture. We know that all of the Canaanites and the seed of the serpent after the flood are the ones who begin worshiping idols made out of gold and silver, and they begin using all of the weapons to create war. That's how Nimrod basically enslaves the world at that time is through power of wielding these weapons, which we know came back before the flood. In fact, it was in Genesis 4 that we're told that Tubal-Cain is the instructor of every artificer in brass and iron. And when you look at the etymology of those words, it becomes clear that he was a master mason, sort of the inventor and the originator of being able to forge different weapons out of these precious metals. And of course, we know from the book of Enoch that one of the things that the fallen angels had taught to Cain and the daughters of Cain is how to use metal. And so... What we're seeing in the film here is this post-flood age of Nimrod where the age of the religion of steel is being implemented. And this is why Conan's father says to Conan, the secret of steel has always carried with it a mystery. You must learn it, little Conan. You must learn its discipline. In other words, you must become a disciple of steel. 
For no one in this world can you trust, not men, not women, not beasts, but only this can you trust. And this kind of takes us back to the survival of the fittest mentality, that only those who are big enough, strong enough, and have the most weapons and the biggest, the biggest and greatest warriors are going to be able to rule the land. And the reason this is important is because it, it makes it clear in the scripture. If you go back to the, the days of Egypt, right after the Exodus, in both Deuteronomy and Exodus, God tells the Hebrews, I am the Lord thy God, which brought you out of Egypt from the house of bondage. Thou shalt serve no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make any graven images or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that's in the earth beneath or that is in the waters beneath the earth. And he goes on to clarify in Exodus 20, Ye shall not make gods of silver, neither shall you make gods of gold. The reason that God told the Israelites not to do that is because that's exactly what mankind had been doing prior to that moment, including in Egypt where they worshipped the golden bull. This is exactly why while Moses was up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments, his brother Aaron was fashioning the golden bull down at the base of Mount Sinai because that's what the religion had become, making gods of silver and gold and also using them for weapons. So we see that there's some continuity between what's going on in Conan in the post-flood world and what was going on, biblically speaking, in the post-flood world. And it's also important to understand that it was the seed of the serpent that really introduced this concept to humanity. Of course, the fallen angels introduced it, but it's the seed of the serpent who ran with it. We know that one of the definitions or, or the names of Cain, one of the meanings of his name, is the smiths. And this refers to all of the master masons who would learn to use the different types of metals. Now, another interesting detail is that we're told in Genesis 4 that Zillah bore Tubalcain, who was the master mason of brass and iron, and he was the sister of Nama. Now, this is the only time that Nama is mentioned in the entire Bible, but you have to understand that it is extremely rare for a woman's name to be included in any of the lineage in the beginning of Genesis. In fact, the only other woman that's mentioned is Eve. And it's obvious why Eve was mentioned, because she plays a very important role in humanity. She's the mother of all living. So naturally, God included her within the scripture. So we have to ask ourselves, why is Nama, Tubal-Cain's sister, being included within Genesis 4? We're told of all of the lineage from Cain all the way down through Tubal-Cain, no other women are mentioned except for Nama. And there's going to come a point later in the movie where Nama reemerges. But one of the things that I think is really fascinating, and, and it's a very controversial idea, is that one of Noah's wives was Nama. And that's something that we're going to dedicate an entire lecture to here, hopefully in the near future, looking at that. Now, at first glance, you may say, that's impossible. I've never heard that before. But there's actually 
a lot of biblical and apocryphal texts that help substantiate this. And there's even some subtle clues within the scripture that would allude to this possibility. And we'll look at that at another time. Now, the very next scene in the movie is where this barbarian horde comes into Conan's village and they burn the entire village. They kill all of the villagers as well as Conan's father. And the leader of the horde is a, is a man or better said an entity by the name of Thulsa Doom. And you can see some of the symbolism on his head. He's wearing a, a iron helmet that has two snakes facing each other with a black sun in between. And we see all of the standards that they're carrying around. They are covered in what we would imagine the days of Nimrod after the flood would be. These are mighty warriors, mighty soldiers. They're all wearing armor and their goal is to conquer and to take as much booty as they can get. Now, Conan's mother at this point is the only one alive and she lifts up her sword against them to try and defend her son. Now, it's important going forward to understand that Thulsa Doom basically is the symbolic representation of Nimrod. That Nimrod, as we've looked at in the past, all of the renditions make it clear that he was a giant. He was referred to as a demigod throughout many ancient writings. And as we'll see in the movie, Thulsa Doom will also be mentioned as a demigod. And so that is who he symbolizes within the film. Now, it's at this point that Thulsa Doom climbs off of his horse. He takes his helmet off of his head and he approaches Conan and his mother. And he gazes at them for a long period of time. Up to the point that he literally puts Conan's mother into a spell. And this is a very important um, thing that's being portrayed because what we're going to learn about Thulsa Doom is that he's a necromancer and a sorcerer and he's able to communicate with the dead and he's able to put a spell over regular human beings. And the reason I think that that's pertinent, because if you go back to the garden account and you look at the serpent who deceived or beguiled Eve, the Hebrew word for serpent is the nakash. And the verb definition of the nakash is a soothsayer or a enchanter someone who whispers in your ear like he's making a hissing sound in order to place a spell over you that's what the word enchantment means it means to enchant somebody to put put them in an enchanting mind-altering spell and so that's exactly what Thulsa Doom does here he's able to woo Conan's mother to the point where she drops her sword and she's totally enamored with him and just when you think that things are going to be okay, he turns away from her. And then in a split second, he flips a 180 and he ends up cutting her head off. And at that exact moment, Conan, who's holding her hand, ends up letting go and her dead body falls into the snow. And at that moment, there's an intense scene where Conan down here below looks at his dead mother and then he stares into the eyes of Thulsa Doom. And you begin to realize that 
Conan's destiny has now been forged. That there's th this is a timeline of events where everything changes from this moment going forward, and that his prophetic destiny moving forward will be to avenge his mother and father's death. So this represents the Proto-Evangelium in the Bible, where it says that there's going to be enmity or conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. So going forward in the movie, Conan now represents the seed of the woman, while Thulsa Doom represents the seed of the serpent. And as we'll see, there's great conflict between these two seed lines, and eventually the seed of the woman is destined to crush the seed of the serpent's head. And that's exactly what we'll see transpire. Now, the other very subtle but powerful subliminal imagery that's being displayed here is the blue eyes on the dark skin. Now, in today's world, we understand that different ethnicities can come together and have a blend of people. You know, a black person and a white person can have a child and they're usually very beautiful. They have some of the best attributes of, of both cultures. And so we've seen dark-skinned, blue-eyed people. That's not what's trying to be demonstrated here in the movie, although on first glance, that's what most people would see. See, when you look at James Earl Jones in real life, he obviously doesn't have blue eyes, which means that when they were designing the character of Thulsa Doom, they specifically changed his eye color. And you have to ask the question, why? Is it because we're made to believe that his mom was white and his dad was black or vice versa? No. What they're trying to demonstrate is the hybridization. They're trying to reveal to you that he's not 100% of the Adamic race, that there's something different about this guy, that he has a different kind of DNA flowing through his blood. And it's the ultimate symbolism of the pre-flood Nephilim. The other thing they're trying to demonstrate is, is his youthfulness. Notice how clean his hair is. Notice there's not a single gray hair in here. Notice how his face is structured. You know, there's very little wrinkles. He, he, he demonstrates a sort of timelessness. And that's because we're going to find out that he's actually a thousand years old, that the person of Thulsa Doom actually lived before the flood. And I think that's really fascinating when you take into consideration that there are certain organizations on the planet, some of the Masonic Cabal, some of these Babylonian Illuminati bloodlines who actually claim that they've been you know, keeping their blood uh, concentrated by marrying other royal families for generations and generations that go all the way back to the beginning and that they have always been the royal bloodlines who rule over the planet. So now that the village has been destroyed and Conan's family have been murdered, they round up all the children. And we see an image here where they're rounding up the kids. We see all of this symbolism in the background. The destroyed village, Conan's mother laying there, bleeding out into the snow. And this is what the narrator says. The ashes were trampled into the earth and the blood became as snow. Who knows what they came for? Was it weapons? Was it steel or murder? It was never known. For their leader rode off to the south 
while the children went north with the veneer. No one would ever know that my Lord's people had lived at all. His was a tale of sorrow. So you may ask, why did they kill all the adults and take the children? And I'm sure the answer is multifactorial, but I'd say one, because the adults already have their ideology in place and the children are much easier to mind control and brainwash. Secondly, as we'll see here in a moment, they're going to use them for genetic hybridization um, to produce a, a better genetic stock. And so they need these prepubescent boys and girls to do that. And what we see is that they take the children out into the desert to something called the Wheel of Doom. And it's here that we see a young boy who's part of Thulsa Doom's people with red hair. And of course, red symbolically also represents the serpent seed. We know that in Revelation 12, Satan's referred to as the red dragon. And also, uh, I believe that this boy represents Esau, which we'll discuss in a moment. But in the scripture, God says, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. And we've looked at some lectures regarding the two boys and it's very clear that Esau was a very wicked man who um, really typifies the seed of the serpent. And so I believe there's some symbology there as well. But going forward to the movie, it's this red-haired boy who's the one who ends up shackling Conan to the Wheel of Doom. And it shows Conan and the other children pushing it around in circles. And they do this for many, many years until the point where many of the children die. In fact, only the strongest survive. And this takes us back to this nihilistic concept that Nietzsche said at the beginning of the, field, uh, of the film that that which doesn't kill us makes us stronger. See, the serpent seed have no problem doing this. They have no problem shackling children to the wheel of doom and walking them around in circles until the weakest ones die because they have this nihilistic understanding that there is no right or wrong, there is no morality, there's only you dominating those underneath you. So continuing on, they show Conan as he grows up. He's basically pushing this wheel around for 20 years through all of the different four seasons, through the hot of summer, through the frigid ice of the cold, and he's getting bigger, he's getting stronger. The other kids who aren't as physically endowed are slowly dropping off like flies until eventually we come to a point where Conan is the only survivor. And it's at this point that he's become this very large Herculean style man, very muscular in nature. And so it's now at this point that the redheaded boy who had shackled him all those years ago now returns in the movie, only he's an adult man as well. And it's time for him to collect Conan and take him to into the next phase of his destiny. And as I mentioned before, I believe that it's a possibility that he could represent Esau. And they chose this kind of really hairy, red-haired man for a reason. And we know that the scripture says that Esau came out like a red, hairy garment. And they both represent the seed of the serpent. So I think there's some continuity there. So the next thing we see is that 
Now that Conan is fully developed, he is taken to the East as a great prize. So they've invested a lot of time and energy into developing him. He was one of the select few who were able to survive all those years on the wheel. It's back to Nietzsche's quote, survival of the fittest and that which doesn't kill you makes you stronger. He's one of the strongest ones left. So he's a great prize. And they're going to take him back to the East where the war masters would teach him the deepest secrets. And this is back to this occult knowledge that before the flood, all of the ancient sciences were revealed and these sciences are all being revived after the flood and in order to receive these deeper secrets you have to travel to the east from a biblical standpoint that represents babylon it's you know the rising sun comes up in the east and we see like for example the magi the the, the star worshipers um, from Persia, who all travel from the East. And so the East always has this connotation that has to do with the occult and um, sorcery. So it's time for Conan to go to the East, and it's time for his training to be taken to the next level. He needs to learn how to become the master of steel. But while he's there, they're also going to teach him language and writing, it says that um, he learned the poetry of Katai and the philosophy of Sung, and that he also came to know the pleasures of women when he was bred to the finest stock. But there always remained the discipline of steel. So we see that Conan is now being enlightened, if you would, with all of the sacred sciences, and this just represents, you know, spiritually, this represents the secret societies, the initiation process, climbing the pyramid to the top, learning the deepest secrets, and receiving the knowledge. But always there remain the discipline of steel because, as we're going to see here shortly, it's time for Conan to be thrust into the Colosseum where he will become a great gladiator. Now, I had said earlier that we're going to find that Conan represents Jesus Christ. And we have to remember that the writers of the film were Masons. They're into the New Age and Theosophy. And so they're embedding within the film their understanding of Christ, which is a false version. What they're espousing is that Conan, or Christ, is a man who learned all of the initiations, all of the occult. And it was through the enlightenment of the secret sciences that he evolved to become the man that he would eventually be. However, as we'll point out throughout the movie, there's the real version that we'll see play out in the scripture. And that is, is that Conan really represents Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, who was destined to come and destroy Satan and to overcome sin and death for humanity. So the next phase is to throw Conan into the Colosseum. And it's here that he's going to have many, many famous battles with other similar style gladiators. They get to pick all kinds of unusual met metallic weapons 
and they fight to the death while the crowds cheer. And it's here where the narrator says, Conan didn't care anymore. Life and death were the same thing, only that the crowd would be there to greet him with howls of lust and fury. He began to realize his sense of worth, and in time, his victories could not easily be counted. And eventually we see that Conan becomes the greatest gladiator of them all. And there comes a point in time when they're basically ready to retire him, so to speak. And it's the final lesson where we see the redheaded man. He comes at night and he releases Conan to go free. We're not told why, but his final words to Conan are, what is best in life, Conan, other than to crush your enemies, see them driven before you, and to hear the lamentation of their women. That is what's best in life. Go now, you are free. So it's this final um, teaching, if you will, that his mentor has now passed on to the student, which really helps sort of paint a picture of what the immediate post-flood world was like. It was a survival of the fittest, uh, every man for himself, the best things in life were to crush your enemies and see the lamentation of their women. This is how it was in the days of Nimrod. Nimrod was an absolute evil dictator who completely crushed all those around him and opposed them in every way. And he serves as the archetype of the Antichrist. So now that Conan's been released, he takes off and you know, he's just walking around aimlessly. And he just happens to stumble upon this big megalithic structure with these large stones. And within these large stones is a subterranean cavern that goes down underneath the earth. And, you know, what appears to be a coincidence, you realize, according to the film's symbolism, is that this is his destiny. As an ascended master now, he's destined to follow the footsteps of his predecessors and learn all of the deepest secret and occult knowledge. The other thing that it's implying is this concept of all these megalithic structures that were back before the flood. What we'll find underneath this structure is that Conan's going to stumble into the ancient bones of the pre-flood Atlantean kings. And it's insinuating that they are the ones who built everything on the planet prior to the flood. And we've looked at many of these structures in the past. We, we know that we have places like Stonehenge and this large stone here called Baalbek, where they used to worship the god Baal. This is a 1,500-ton stone that they found in the cities of Lebanon. And as you can see, it has right angles, and it's a, it's a very sophisticated um, stone that was quarried in such a way that nobody today can possibly fathom how they did it. And what's being implied in the film is that it was the Atlantean race who did it. And of course, from a biblical perspective, we know that to be the Nephilim race. So naturally, Conan goes down into the subterranean caverns and he ends up stumbling upon one of the pre-flood Atlantean kings who's actually sitting on a throne and he's holding an ancient sword. And He's got a lot of interesting symbolism around him. We see on the left that there is a royal arch right here. And we also see above the ancient Atlantean king that there's a royal arch right here. 
Now, to most people, that's not a very important detail. But what we have to understand is that the royal arch has always been a very prominent and powerful symbol within the Masonic religion, as we see down here on the bottom, as well as the pillars of Hercules, which represent the ancient demigods of the pre-flood world. And so it's here that Conan discovers the pre-flood kings, and him being a disciple of steel, he reaches out and he grabs the ancient sword. And as you can see in the bottom left, they show it's covered in dirt and cobwebs. They're trying to depict the fact that this is a very ancient structure and a very ancient sword that goes back to the pre-Atlantean world. And so now Conan, of course, is quite excited and enamored with this. And he cleans off the sword and then he looks at the Atlantean king and he bows before him and he pays homage to him as if he's in a very subconscious way saying that I am now the next level of evolution, that I am the Aryan master race that's going to continue projecting this same occult knowledge forward. And that's pretty much what's being displayed in this particular image. So what the film's really trying to convey here is that Conan is basically picking up where the pre-Atlantean kings left off, that he's the one who's been trained in all the arts. He's become an ascended master. It was his destiny to come into the subterranean caverns and discover the ancient bones of the pre-flood Atlantean kings. And it's there that he would discover the enigma of steel and now that he's evolved to this level, it's time for him to go out and become the fulfillment of the next evolution, which is the Aryan race. That's what Madame Blavatsky taught, that the Atlantean race was wiped out, but they would later incarnate into greater physical and spiritual bodies known as the Aryan race. And so it's really not a coincidence that the writers of the film chose someone like Arnold Schwarzenegger because Arnold Schwarzenegger is actually of an Austrian-German descent. And so from the film's perspective, Arnold Schwarzenegger, who of course plays Conan, embodies this evolutionary process to the Aryan man. Schwarzer, Conan is now the Aryan man who's going to continue on with the occult um, past and carry it forward into the future. And he represents this Christ consciousness and this, this higher level of becoming an ascended master within the brotherhood. So I think this is a good place to stop. I promised a long time ago that I would stop doing two and a half hour videos. And it looks like this is going to be about a three part series. And so on the next lecture, we'll pick up right where we left off. On that note, Godspeed, and we'll see you on the next one.